Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Girl of Gen Z podcast. I'm your host, Clarissa, and joining me today is Amanda Pollock. Amanda has been everything from a stage performer, producer of live editorial content, producer of a wine and food series, and more. As of right now, Amanda is a book coach. I never knew such a thing existed until I came across her bio, but Amanda is here to talk to us all about it today. Before we go ahead with the episode, if you could kindly take two minutes to rate the podcast five stars, preferably, and leave a review on the podcast app, that would be much appreciated. And if you're watching this on YouTube, if you could give the video a quick thumbs up, subscribe, and hit the notification bell, I will forever be grateful. As always, the timestamps of the topics we cover in the episode will be listed in the episode show notes. And without further ado, let's get on into the episode. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I am so good, Clarissa. Thank you for having me. Of course. How is it um, where you're living right now? What's the weather like? What's the COVID situation like? It's, um, we are getting like a cold front, so it feels like it's actually fall, and I love it. I'm like, oh good, I get to wear my layers and my sweaters and whatever, and so yeah, it's it's nice. It gets really hot here in the summer, so. Where are you living right now? Nashville. Oh, nice. Oh, this is probably so nice. Yeah. Um, there's some trees outside, um, of my windows that are like turning, you know, the foliage is starting. And so I'm just like getting my, you know, being kind of basic, but I love it. Like my fall candles and (laughs) all of like my pumpkin stuff, but Oh, for sure. It's the season for it. I wish it was longer than the couple months it is. Like, I feel like we go right into, at least in Canada, we go into winter so quick and then it just feels like such a long winter. So as soon as you see those leaves changing, you just want to like be outside for as much as you can until there's like bare trees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's the pandemic situation look like there? Are like your gyms open or restaurants open or are you guys still in heavy lockdown? Um, things have started opening up some it's still, it's like that limbo phase. I feel like for some people, you know, so I, um, pre-pandemic, I spent a lot of time like with friends at different restaurants and stuff. We have like a pretty good food scene here. And so once all of that shut down, it's been interesting to kind of like reintroduce myself to like what it is to go to a restaurant, how I'm supposed to interact with people because I would totally be that like, you know, you go to the bar and you just start talking to the bartender, whatever. Now you can't really do that. And so it's been this whole switch of like, how do I, how do I interact in this world? Um, but we, they've started slowly opening up some of the bars. I haven't ventured into that because I don't know <laughs> ready for that but things are definitely opening up I think that um now that stuff has gotten a little bit um the weather has gotten nicer people are outside more and just it feels a little bit more normal minus everyone wearing masks right right I think that we just have to deal with that yeah what it is for sure so is it that you guys only have to wear masks in public like indoor public spaces or do you have to wear them outside as well that's a good question. So um, I think that the city order is that you have to wear them in public. And I do anyway, um, just because I've had a couple of instances where someone pops out of nowhere and I wasn't prepared. And so I'm like, nope, just all the time because I don't know what's going to happen. But, um, but definitely indoors. And I think the thing that I'm still even navigating is like what you do when you're in the restaurant. 
Like once you sit down, am I still supposed to be wearing my mask? You're wearing your mask, do I pull it up every time you come over? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking from a server perspective, because I did serve and bartend um, until yeah. we kind of are slowly going back into lockdown again, unfortunately, I've had my guests ask me the same thing. They're like, once we sit, do we take off the mask? Do we leave it on? Do we take it off when we're drinking? But then when you come back, we put it on. Like, how, how do you want us to be with this? And I'm like, honestly, this is like a learning curve for me too. I mean, I, I've been told once you sit, you're good. You take off the mask. But I don't know, some places are more strict and they like come up to the table. They're like, you cannot take it off until you literally have food at the table. So yeah, definitely a weird learning time for everyone. Oh my gosh. And so you're going back on lockdown? Um, slowly. Yeah. Like our city specifically is going under a 28 day, I wouldn't say a strict lockdown again, like the hair salons are open, but, um, like the gyms are closed, all indoor dining is closed, but the outdoor dining is open. So I don't know. I I feel like we're slowly going to go into full lockdown again. It's just kind of getting to be like that, but no. And then also if like winter is coming, I know you won't be able to go to this outdoor restaurant. I know. And that's like, people are like, Oh, we have heaters, but like, I don't know. There's only so many people that are willing to go do that. You know, like I can't imagine my parents or my grandparents even going to a restaurant and being like, yeah, I'm going to go sit in my jacket outside and pay to have this food. Like, no. (laughs) I'm also thinking of like my parents or even like aunts and uncles. They'd be like, no, we're not here for this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, enough about the pandemic talk. Let's talk about some positivity here. Um, Let's start off with your upbringing. So where did you grow up? Uh, Where are you living now? Um, And then we'll transition into some other job related questions. Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Northern California, a town called Vacaville. It's in between Sacramento and San Francisco, um, about 30 miles east of Napa. So grew up in wine country. Um, Yeah, like it's funny now that I'm living in the South, um, my mom, her and her family are all from the South also. They're from South Carolina and it's just interesting how where you're from creates this identity that you don't realize until you go somewhere else. So, you know, growing up in Northern California, like, I don't know, I believed that, you know, summers you go to the beach, but you have like a hoodie on and it's always cold. And it's just like a, just a very particular lifestyle. Um, that it wasn't super weird if you were going to move to LA <laughs> to do acting, which I did. And then like coming here, Nashville's really awesome because there's so many um, artists and musicians and people move here for a specific reason. So it's um, a little bit easier to connect with some of those people who have had like a little bit of like a non-linear career path. But, you know, being here in Nashville, I'm like, I miss vineyards and wine and not having to pay extra because they have to ship it so far and I also I miss the beach and I miss like baseball I don't know anything about college football like just all of these very like just so small like very particular things that it's been interesting um because I've been in the south now for about five years I was in Birmingham before this but um you know, like the, your roots, like you don't realize so how much like it creates that person who you are, because even like 
when I was younger, you know, I just thought like, oh, everybody's from California. I don't know. Like, it's just a place. And then, you know, you move around and like the states are kind of crazy because it's basically like 50 different countries. Um, so I think that's just been interesting. I've kind of had some self-reflection of like, I don't know who I really am. I didn't mean to be like so deep at this, but it's just, it's kind of interesting. Like as you move and adapt and stuff, and then you realize like, I'm, I thought we were all just kind of the same, but I just feel a little bit different. Just maybe it's just the wine thing. But. <laughs> <laughs> Do you realize any like major cultural differences from place to place? Um, that's a good question. I would say that and I feel confident saying this because my mom and her whole family are from the South, but there's this idea at least here where, you know, Southerners, um, this Southern hospitality. So that everyone here is like super nice and all of this stuff. And that um, people from out West might be fake or, you know, I lived in LA for a long time too. So people have this idea, oh, you're from California. So you have a Oceanside mansion and <laughs> you know, you, you know, all of the celebrities and whatever. And so, um, they, there's this assumption that, you know, maybe you're just not as authentic or you're just rude and you think you're better than other people. And so once I got here, you can kind of tell a little bit, like if you tell people like, oh, I'm from California and um, they have just automatic assumptions. I think that's probably with anything, but the South of the Southern hospitality, the thing that cracks me up is my mom who's full Southern. And she's like, it is a load of crap. It's <laughs> she's like, hey, they're, they're going to talk crap about you behind their back or whatever. And so I think that for me, it's just been this more of an understanding because I really like to like cut to the chase and I feel like that was a little bit of you know that was how I you know grew up like most of the people you know you're not taking things so personally you're not t mean terrible people but it's kind of like the same thing that people say about New Yorkers um like I did a writing program there and someone said yeah you know people give New Yorkers such a hard time because they think that we're rude but you know because we don't want to talk to you on the street but think of it like on your daily commute, someone coming up to your window and knocking on your window and being like, hey, I want to have like a 15 minute conversation with you. You're yeah, like, not realistic. Like I got to get to work. Yeah. So anyway, so it's just, I think that's interesting. And I didn't realize how bold I was until I got to the South where I will speak up in a meeting. I will tell you if I don't, you know, think that something is correct and I'm not afraid to use my voice which is not necessarily a thing that so many people <laughs> do in the south so I think that as far as like cultural stuff it was a little bit of like just understanding some more of that nuance like I can still 100% be Amanda but maybe sometimes I need to like tone it down <laughs> yeah like dial it back or dial it up depending where you're at right exactly Wow. Awesome. Well, where did you go to university then? Yeah. So I went to college um, at Mills College in Oakland, California. Okay. Okay. And was that a four-year program? Yeah. Um, so actually I, um, I was acting in LA and the great recession hit and all of a sudden I had to, I couldn't get like, you know, a regular just day job. And I ended up just having this epiphany that I wanted to go to college because 
every single job that was out there you had to have a college degree and I was like maybe I should just do this thing so I actually started at community college in Santa Monica and I chose that school specifically because it was like the number one transfer school for community colleges to universities and I'm so grateful I did that it's so much cheaper um <laughs> So, but I, I transferred about a year and a half in and I went there specifically because I had this idea I wanted to work for a magazine and they specifically had one, it was back in Northern California. I kind of felt sadly that my time in LA, I'd been there for like five years, felt like my time was coming to an end, which is just a really hard thing to have a dream just slip away mm -hmm. um, or acknowledge that it might not be the right thing at the right time. But um, I, I went there because they had a magazine writing uh, class, well, actually like a total um, program and that's pretty rare. So, and it's just, it was one woman and I just like really went there. I was like, I'm going to make her my friend and she is gonna help me get some jobs after college because I can't do this whole thing again where like, as, as I talk about how we're in a global pandemic <laughs> working out and trying to get work, but, but yeah, that was how I ended up there. So would you say that that teacher for that program was a mentor in your life during that transition period of finding work after college and still kind of being in the acting world? Oh, sorry, not acting world. I'm thinking about acting and she's the magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're okay. good. I was like mixing both paths together. Oh my gosh. Feel free to just be like, I don't remember where you are. <laughs> I still have friends and family who are like, where are you living? What are you doing? I have no idea. Um, yeah. So I, you know, the, the benefit too of being older and going to college, I think was that I was just so intentional about what I was doing. So I, um, you know, showed up for this magazine writing class and um, so Mills is actually, it's a small, um, liberal women's college. Okay. And so, you know, it was really nice because you were able to connect with professors in a way that I feel like I might not have at a larger school. And so the first day I just remember, I was like, I'm sitting right next to her. Cause it was just this big, long table and mostly the professors sat by the door. And so I just sat right up front and I just made sure to, you know, be engaged and to have my assignments in like, well, I mean, you should have them in on time, but you know, to go above and beyond and just really show her my abilities because I knew that what nobody told me, especially when I moved to LA about acting and all of that, just even building your career is how much networking is really important. And the people who can really help you are most often right in front of you and you don't realize it. So I knew immediately because she, I was like, she is my person. I'm, she doesn't know it yet, but she's my person. And it's funny because her last name is Pollock also, but it's spelled oh. differently. So she would introduce me some, like later on when we would be at networking events, she would introduce me and she's like, but she's not my Amanda. Like, Amanda, oh. she's not my Amanda, but she is, you know. Um, but yeah, I really, I latched onto everything she said and you know, she'd been in the industry for years. And so one of the, the biggest um, things she wanted all of us to do was to join an organization and like a professional organization. And so hers specifically 
was um, JAWS, Journalism and Women's Symposium. And so there's like women from the New York Times, you know, Washington Post, all kinds of magazines and stuff. They have, it's a, it's a national organization, but they have local chapters. And she's like, you just need to meet these women. You need to meet other people because you don't know who they know. And that was kind of like what shot me off with my career is just like that piece of advice because it's so true. For sure. So you majored in magazine writing. English. Great question though. Um, so I, uh, so I did English because I wasn't really sure. And I had enough credits, honestly, for a journalism, probably minor or something. I was on track to get my MBA and then decided that I just needed to focus on writing. Um, that's just when you're at a college and they're like, women can do everything. And I'm like, yeah. okay, we can't do everything. Um, so it was English with a concentration in creative writing. Cause I started, um, my, my passion had always just been writing fiction. And then it just, you know, as, as it does, the, the winding path takes you different places, but, For sure. but yeah. So, wow. Okay. So where was your first internship and what was it like having an internship at a later age? Cause I know I read somewhere that you were 28. Mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. So tell us how that experience was. Yeah. Um, so another piece of advice that my professor had was, you know, create the internship you want. And I really took that to heart because just remembering before I'd started college and when you're looking at these internships and there's, you know, some places that are very specific about what they're looking for. It's insane to me that people want someone to have like so much experience for an internship. Agreed. Like the levels of stuff where I'm like, you realize that people are trying to learn stuff, right? Oh, okay. Um, but so my first internship kind of happened, actually had two. So there was, um, there is a, it's like a franchise, like a food franchise magazine. It's called Edible. And they have, I know they have like Edible Vancouver and then you have Edible Nashville. And so each one's independently owned, but it's focusing on like local and regional, you know, restaurants and food, you know, stories. And I really, really loved it. I was just kind of drawn to it and I didn't see anything for an internship. And I sent uh, a couple of clips I had for my college paper and my website, which my professor was like, everyone should have a website. This is your new business card. And I was like, it made me feel a little bit like so professional. So uh, I just, I reached out and I was just like, hey, I really love the stories you do. And I would love to be able to contribute. You know, please let me know how, or if you have any space for an editorial intern. And I was just so lucky. The editor wrote me right back and she, they didn't have a formal program, but she was like, sure, I actually have this story that I need someone to go cover. Would you want to do it? And it's like, yes, please. And I think the first one, it was interviewing like a, a new, there was a, a restaurant owner who was expanding. And so I went and I interviewed him. And then she had another one that was like a, this food walking tour in Oakland that had gained a lot of traction. And so I needed to go and cover that. I never met her in person. <laughs> like I only sent my clips like via email. We only, that was the only way we talked. And it was just, it's one of those kind of kismet moments where you just feel 
such relief that you're doing something and you just feel like you're on the right track. Yeah. The, the other internship, um, it was for Diablo Magazine, which is um, the East, it covers the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area. And so it's uh, like a luxury lifestyle magazine. And I did the kind of the same pitch that I did for um, Edible East Bay. But I felt so intimidated because like you go, you know, it's in a building, you're going and you're meeting these editors and you're having to pitch yourself in so many ways of like, you know, how you tell stories differently and whatever. And I just, I remember feeling like, oh man, like I'm really doing this now. You know, I was, I think I was 27 at that time or something, but just feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome. because I was like, before I didn't meet the lady and you know I, I cover these stories and then now it's like oh you're going to be coming into this office and you're going to be doing this thing and I want to say this because I ended up getting I did not feel good about that interview at all I was like I don't know that they would they would want me imposter syndrome all the time but when they came back and said that they wanted to hire me I kind of had like a little bit of like an anxiety attack of just like, I think that sometimes we forget that even as much as you're working towards something and you really want something, sometimes when it is within your grasp, you will sabotage so hard. And so I remember saying like, I just don't think it's going to work with my schedule and I just don't think I can do it. And thank goodness my editor was like, okay, hi we'll make this work, whatever it is, we really want you. And even just saying this out loud that I almost like just ruined that whole thing still kills me because I'm looking at your face and I'm like, I know, I know that was not smart. <laughs> Thank God they had the response they did or else, what do you think? You wouldn't have had it then. I mean, just even saying that of like, I was I went specifically to this school to work in magazines and, you know, I have this opportunity for, you know, a, a full semester internship and to learn the stuff that I want so I can, you know, apply for bigger jobs that I want. And then I basically just say, hey, thanks, but no thanks. <sighs> Thank goodness. I still sent her emails and I'm like, I'm just so glad that you didn't let me not do this. Thank you. I definitely understand how it can be an intimidating process with like the big heads, big wigs of the company walking into a building um, of all these professionals that have been in the industry for probably years and going through your other internship was all pretty much virtual. Um, and it's, you don't really have to physically face anybody. So I feel like it's such a different um, like feeling you get from the situations. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, because too, I, I knew some of the women who were on staff through that women, that journalism women's network. I knew okay. of them. Okay. So I think that there was also this thing where I knew my professor knew these women too. So I was like, okay, I really got to do this. I really got to show up. I really got it. They're going to talk about me. It's going to be something. I have no idea, but you know, and this, building too, like, I think, um, you know, especially for magazines and local magazines, um, some of them had really downsized and this one, they're an independent publisher. So they also were publishing other lifestyle 
magazines that their ad budget was huge. And so, and you know, that's a, a thing that sustains magazines. So it just felt very, very official. I just felt very like aware of what was happening. And I'm so, so grateful that they didn't let me stop, but also that, you know, I even, I think sometimes, um, you know, even when you're interviewing and when you're, you're trying for something that you think might even be a little bit of a reach, like, I know that I was saying stuff in that interview, not that it was a lie or anything, but you know, you're trying to even talk yourself up of, no, Amanda, you know how to write, you know how to do this. These are the actual things that you're like, you're really good at. And so then, you know, just also you're, you're talking yourself up, but you're also talking to yourself of like, no, it's, you got this. This is why you were here. And then you try to self-sabotage if people don't let you and, and somehow it works out. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that there were some advantages of you being an older intern as opposed to someone who was, you know, much, much younger entering the field? Yeah. I mean, so there, there was actually a few non-traditional students as well. So that was helpful. Um, so I think, I think there was such an advantage of like me just knowing what I wanted because about, uh, it was my last year of school. I found the, um, it was a one-year fellowship with Time Inc. So the former parent company of Time Magazine, Food and Wine, right? Uh, Southern Living, Cooking Light. And so it was a one-year fellowship in Birmingham, Alabama. And I was like, that sounds amazing. You get put with, you know, one brand and you're there for an entire year and they pay you. And so I had that in the back of my head. So anything that I was doing, especially for that, you know, first, like a real official internship, I was like, I'll do whatever, like whatever you want me to do. Um, fact checking is the thing that you do a lot um, at a magazine, well, at least at this one. And I remember being a little bit salty just because I was like, no, like I'm going to be a writer. I want to write things. You're not going to tell me like to call this restaurant just to make sure that their hours are the correct or, you know, whatever it was. Uh, so I, but it, that was such a good lesson for me because I was able to grow my contacts. I was able, you know, people would start friending me on LinkedIn or, you know, even just checking in about other stuff or uh, you're, you're also building relationships with their publicists which really helped me when um, I did end up getting that one-year fellowship with Time Inc. And I was the oldest of all of the fellows. There was like 30 of us. Oh, wow. And I was like, okay, I got this. I don't, I feel totally comfortable doing this because I've already had an experience where I was older and maybe wiser and I'm going to make the most of this opportunity. Right. So jumping back a little bit then um, to your acting days. Yeah. So it said in one of your bios that you were 23 when you decided to, quote, retire, unquote, from acting. So 
I guess you did touch on a little bit about why you kind of made that decision, but talk a little bit about your, how your acting went and how you went about that. And if your parents kind of pushed you to do it, if you grew up being like, you know what, I think this is really suitable for me. Yeah. I, at the age of, I say at the age of three, just because I remember like a school play and I was like, this is it. <laughs> no, I used to make everybody like do plays. I wrote plays in school that we did um, for assemblies. Every person who you talk to, if like family, friend, whatever, they're like, oh yeah, Amanda's moving to LA. She's going to be an actor. She's going to be famous. And so you have this story ingrained in you because I do love the thrill of live performance. I love uh, reading plays. Like I would legit go to the library and like check out plays and just read them like their books and study them. And so LA was always the thing. I think it was because it was close. I never really thought about New York for acting. And so I first moved when I was 19. Oh, wow. I was in a intensive and I had a roommate and you know, you're going to this acting class like four days a week. And most of the people in there were a good seven plus years older than me, which when you're 19, that's a huge difference. It is. Yeah. I was so lucky though, because these people kind of took me under their wing and even though I wasn't ready really to be there then, I ended up moving back home. It was a really good grounding thing for me because I had was able to connect with people who were doing the things that I wanted to do. And I knew that I just needed some more life experience before I was able to like go back and really follow that dream. But so when I, I got back to LA, it was I was 21 and I was like, well, this hat, this really has to be it. Like, I can't, I cannot move back uh, home again. But I had this idea that I wanted to take an improv class. And it was actually from some of the friends I had met when I lived there before. They were like, hey, we're starting to take this improv class at the Second City, which um, for people who don't know, Second City is the world's largest improv and sketch comedy theater. And it started in Chicago. They have a theater in Toronto and then also a theater in LA. Wow. And so, um, like SNL pulls a lot of people from there. So some of like Second City alums are Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Keegan Michael Key, Jordan Peele, Tina Fey. So it's a it's a really um, amazing place to learn and grow, especially in comedy. But you know, Second City is really grounded in this idea of you are an, you're actors who improvise. You're not just like some comedy person like doing bits and just trying to get people to laugh like there's a, a real craft behind it so I think right. that's what drew me to it I went through the program graduated ended up I worked in the office and it was when I got laid off from one of my jobs and I was underemployed it was about a year and a half I was still going through the program still trying to figure out what I wanted to do and you know you're going on auditions and you know, I landed some pretty great auditions and I like to say that I landed in an audition because I, sometimes people don't talk about how hard it can be just to get an audition, how hard it can be to just get in the room. And that success is not just about, you know, getting the job or which that's really just what it is, getting the job. Um, 
but so anyway, I felt successful in what I was doing and knowing that there's other people who were living in town and not even going on auditions or not trying to network or they weren't performing in Hollywood every single week. And I had a point though, where, you know, you're all of the improv groups that I was doing or was a part of, they kind of fell apart. There were just things that weren't working like I felt they should. And so that's really where the school idea came in. And it wasn't that I was going to like leave LA. I was like, maybe this is just a thing I need to do for a little bit. And, you know, just set addict, acting aside for a minute, whatever. As soon as I got to school though, I was just like, this is the thing. I am all in. Like, I don't think that I should be focusing on acting right now, which is, you know, a a hard thing in and of itself, but I'm really a huge believer in, you know, when doors open, sometimes you really need to follow them, even if you don't think that that's the place, you know, because you have this, you know, battle, like I said, it was for a story sure. that I was told for so long, you're going to be an actor, you know, I was supposed to win an Academy Award, you know, I have to go back and tell people at home, like, you know, because that's, that's the only measure that some people have, where they're like, so are you like in commercials? You should do commercials. I'm like, oh, okay. So like, do you know a casting director? <laughs> like, do you know? Can you get me in touch? Right? <laughs> They're like, oh, you should be on a soap opera. I'm like, okay, first of all, people who are in soap operas are the hardest working people. Like they're doing that five days a week. It's really hard. That is and so, so true. Me. I was like, I don't know that I could do that, but but yeah, so it was more of just like following this open door and this opportunity and just leaning, leaning into that and being okay with some people thinking that I might be a failure. Right, right. So what was your biggest takeaway, you think, from your acting portion of your life? It's never going to go away. It's never going to go away. Yeah, I, you know, it's just funny as I've even gotten older and like my career has pivoted, those skills and those things still show up so much, especially improv. And, you know, the thing with acting and improv that I have just taken with me over and over is just being so willing to take a note. And by that, I mean, you know, if you're in an acting class or you, you book something, your director is going to give you a note. They're going to tell you like, we need to do something different. And uh, in improv, you know, a note might come from the audience. You know, if you're writing even like sketch comedy or something, um, a note might come from the audience where they're like groaning or they're not really into it or whatever. Like you might have to either, you know, ditch that scene or if you're doing sketch comedy where, you know, you're performing like on SNL, they're performing material that they've written for an audience and then you see like, oh, what's working and what's not. And that's why sometimes when you watch it, it's a little painful because that's the first time. <laughs> but, but take a note and be okay. Like it's not, it's not an attack on you. It's not that you're, you know, not able to, to do the things that you really want to do or that, you know, you should just like pack everything up and move home. Just take the note and move on. Okay. Well said. So let's get into, I guess, your profession more so now. So your title or your 
role, your title role, um, is book coach for food and entertainment professionals. So explain to the listeners what your role entails and the details of your job. What do you do on a daily basis? Yeah. So I book coach, I coach people through the book writing process. So I get a lot of people who come at the very beginning of uh, their book writing journey. They're like, I have this idea. I want to write a book. I don't know what I'm doing. Help me. So uh, I specifically work with people in food and entertainment because uh, my editorial career was so heavily ingrained in food. And then also I'm from the entertainment world. So I felt like those people I was, would be able to serve so much better than um, trying to appeal to everyone. Right. So, uh, so yeah, so the book writing process, it's like, it's just a long process. And I think that the people who come to me know that one, they are capable of telling a story. They're most often um, writers or some kind of storyteller. And uh, chefs in particular are really great storytellers. And they're also really good with knowing what to throw away and what to keep, which is why I really love working with people in the food industry because they're not very precious about stuff. They're passionate, but they're not precious. And uh, so, you know, the first thing that I would do with someone is we just really like identify what's the story that you're telling? What's the market you're going for? Like, who are you really trying to sell this to? Because that dictates a lot of the book writing stuff. But, you know, they send me pages. I give them feedback. I do not tell someone how to write a story. I will just ask questions. I think that's a really important part of, you know, because I'm um, a developmental editor. I am your project manager. And I'm, you know, like your cheerleader. And I was um, on a live coaching call for a group. Uh, earlier this week and one of the women is a published author and she was saying she had gotten some feedback from someone about her the current the current book project she's working on and the person was just telling her this is what you should say here this is what you should do with your story here and she was so angry because it's not this other person's story it's her story and I told her, I said, that's exactly the reason why I will only, I only ask questions unless I'm like, oh, we've done this so many times. This is not the thing that's working. We need right. to try something different, but you are the God of your story. That's what I tell people. And I only want to bring out the things that you don't realize. I'm just there to notice stuff. And, and then from there, you know, it's really up to you. Okay. So you work for yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess it's not really it's like salary. Like how do you kind of figure out your pay structure for yourself being a like entrepreneur, I guess, in a way. I feel like it's a question many people have. I mean, you just make it up. You like, just make it up. <laughs> I mean, this is the like, oh man. Um, so I started this, I was in a book coaching program at the beginning of the year. And um, I really kind of just leaped with it once the pandemic started. And I went in circles trying to figure out pay and all of this stuff. And, you know, when I started, I really just kind of picked a price 
and was like, I don't know, I guess this kind of seems okay. I think my first paid client, um, it was like 300 a month. I was, cause I was just like pulling numbers out of Yeah, you gotta start somewhere. So that's, what you, that's what you do. You know, there's, I'm in, um, a couple of groups with like other book coaches, you know, we talk about business stuff and the amount of people in there, bless them, who just get so hung up on the exact number or the exact thing. Um, they're just wasting time because you, at, at first you just have to see if someone's going to be willing to pay that. And so my first like full, you know, full paid client, it was like 300 a month and it was, you know, we do bi-weekly deadlines. So I'm looking at up to 50 pages of your stuff. I'm doing, you know, two one hour calls with you. And I'm, you know, I was growing my business, you know, I'm growing those things. So I'm also, you're kind of using some of those people in the beginning as, um, you know, guinea pigs, like, okay, this isn't working so much. So I need to pivot this and you're always fine tuning. But you know, once someone was like, I'll pay that easily. Like I didn't have to fight them. I was like, okay, now I need to raise my prices. Yeah. Now I need to, and it's just a gradual process, but I mean, I'm still figuring it out and people have all kinds of ideas about, you know, what you should charge. And my biggest piece of advice is for other, but for people is like, don't compare other people's prices to your own because they might have money blocks. They might have, you know, a different revenue stream that you don't yeah, know. You, you have no idea. So I tried not to worry about other people. And I just was like, let's just... That's good. Throw out a number and see if someone will pay. And you stayed in your lane and saw what worked for you and what didn't work for you, and then you adjusted from that. That makes sense. That makes sense. So I didn't even know. Maybe this is just my ignorant self that a book coach was even a thing. I was like, it makes a lot of sense that those would exist. How did you come about, kind of um, taking on that role? Like, what made you decide you want to be a book coach and not an editor for a magazine or um, there's probably multiple different fields you can take writing in. So what made you decide book coach? So this is such an example of, I don't know if it's like fate, but just things aligning. So I am a student of Marie Forleo. She, um, Oprah listed her as a thought leader for the next generation. I've taken her, um, online business course and B school and, um, she has a couple books and um, her first book, she actually talked about how she hired a book coach to just get this book done, you know, that sometimes you have to bring in a professional, someone who can just tell you what to do. And I'd never heard of a book coach. And I was like, huh, I filed that away in a thing. I was like, that's interesting. Keep it for later. <laughs> Keep it for later. I'm like, book coach, whoa. And my last full-time job, I was working for a content marketing um, company and they gave me the title content coach and I would have never given myself a title of a coach like I just have a very different picture of what that person is and so as a content coach I was you know working with freelance writers and helping them develop their stuff more and that was specifically what my boss wanted he's like I want to maybe eventually develop 
you know, some kind of program or you do trainings, you, you have a lot of these like really good skills um, that can transfer into multiple things. And so I want to utilize them. And I was like, cool, I get to learn some more stuff. And I was getting to a point though, where I was like, I kind of feel like I'm ready for really to be my own boss. And I think that, you know, even going back to the acting stuff and why I loved it, acting gives you the opportunity to be your own boss. And I never really made that connection that you are an entrepreneur, you have to be. And I just wanted to own something of my, you know, have something of my own. I Googled book coach because I was like content coach. And then I was like, oh, I have this file of book coach, you know, in, in my head, let's look at that. And so there's this woman, her name's uh, Jenny Nash, and she was, she worked in publishing for years, taught at UCLA Extension, and she created this program um, through her, uh, her company is called Author Accelerator. And she has this program that, you know, she'll take you through to become a certified book coach. Oh, sweet. And it's, it's crazy. So to your point though, that you, like you didn't know it was a thing, she even says, she's like, I kind of created this thing. And then now she's like putting book coaches out in the world. But the need really comes from a lot of the publishing houses aren't able to nurture writers how they used to. So this is your opportunity to, you know, work with someone who's looking at your pages, who wants to make it agent or, you know, publisher ready. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So what someone would bring this to you before they would take it to a publisher. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And have you heard of any, like, I don't know if they, I don't know if you'd call them clients, um, that they have to sign in waivers or anything. I mean, maybe not waivers, but like contracts. I'm sure you've never done this, but other book coaches, have they ever stolen ideas from like stories they've read or like books that are kind of in the making and has that gone like south at all? Like, have you ever heard of anything like that happening? So, I mean, that's such a good point. Um, I haven't heard of any of that, but what um, I have in my contracts is that this is your story. Okay. And if you don't like anything I'm saying about this thing, then that's fine, but I don't own anything. And I also think that it just like if anything ever happened and like they got sued or something, <laughs> I'm like, I'm covered. Yeah. It, not mine. Um, but I think that's a really natural fear of people. And so most of the coaches who I know, they have that in their contract of like, this is your thing. Don't worry. You know, I'm not going to take this at all. And for the most part, the people who, um, who I know who are coaches, they're also writers. So I think that there's this other feeling of like, Oh, I would, I would just never do that to you. Yeah. Like they put themselves in the other person's shoes. They're like, yeah. well, I would hate if that ever happened to me. So like yeah. vice versa. Um, but if you're looking for a book coach and I would, you know, when you get a contract or something, I would, that would be anytime you're working with an editor or anyone who's looking at your work and, um, there's an opportunity for, you know, like what you're talking about, you know, like creative theft, just make sure that they're very clear about what is and is not theirs and what is and is not yours. And I think right. it's just like that line by line thing because and anytime you talk about artistic stuff, that is always the thing that will come up 
later of, you know, so-and-so stole my idea and that's why people go to court and nobody needs to go to court. Right, right. We try to avoid all those extra things that don't need to be brought up. (laughs) What is maybe one of the most, I would say, different or peculiar questions you felt like you've been asked from a client when coaching them through a book? Man, that's a good question. Um, Have you ever gotten one where you're kind of sitting there like, huh, don't quite know. Uh." Well, the funny thing is, is that people kind of ask the same questions, but I will say the thing that surprises me as as the woman who said no to an internship that she really wanted um, is the amount of self-doubt that people have even after they've committed to working together and this sense of, can I really do this? And so I think that still throws me a little bit, even though I understand it because you have someone who comes in with this very clear idea of what they want to do and stories change, but you know, it it still surprises me when some, you know, come, you know, if we get on a coaching call or if it's after, you know, I've maybe given, you know, some heavy feedback and this overall feeling of, I know that I really want to write this book, but can I even do this? I'm like, everyone has this question. So I'm like, I need to address that in some way. But I think that kind of throws me because my assumption and this is why you shouldn't assume. But is, you know, with some people, it's like, oh, they're super successful in their careers and they've written for other people and they've done this and they've done that. And then when we're just talking about, you know, a simple edit, all of these other doubts come into place. And I think that's probably the thing that um, people don't want to admit so much, but it's that's the recurring one that I'm like, oh man, we're doing this again? Again, I understand because I said no to an internship that I wanted, so. Right, right. (laughs) What are some of the book titles that have been published that you've been fortunate enough to been a book coach for? So there's some that, um, so nothing yet, but there's some that uh, are well on their way now. In the works, okay. Yeah, and and the thing that's fun about this too is some of my clients like thought that maybe they wanted to be traditionally published and then now they're maybe thinking about self-publishing and you know the thing i also have to talk my clients through is that writing a book takes a really long time like i have a mentor who um, was published by Harper Collins wow. and it took her seven years to write her book after she signed the deal. Wow. So it's definitely, it's definitely a process. A lot of, um, a lot of my clients are in the earlier stages of their book writing right currently. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a process and I think people aren't prepared for how I realize you, you can sign without having the full book completed. Sometimes you can, if you hit, and that's rare. And she was just at the right place at the right time, met an agent who was like, sure, I like you, let's do this. So definitely I'm not trying to encourage people just to <laughs> go with an idea and be like, this is my synopsis. What do you think? Right. <laughs> no, 
but definitely uh, some luck. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so you can sell it before, but um, typically recommend, like, especially if it's a first time book that you write the full manuscript because most often they're going to sign you because of the story. Right. Right. And is there like a book writing software that you feel like most people use mm -hmm. or do they just put it on paper or use word? Yeah. So a lot of writers really like Scrivener and I haven't really dove into that too much. I think that, so I'm such a minimalist and I'm like, I already use, I already use word docs. So I have my own, you know, thing, like, we'll just keep this. There's totally a method to the madness with Scrivener. Like they, you know, as far as like project management, but if you have someone else managing the project for you, it might you know, you might use something else, but, but yeah, I'm, a, I'm pretty simple with that. I think even just, you know, I have for all of my clients, I have like this spreadsheet of, you know, just kind of where we're at, where we're going. So in my head, I know, because there is definitely a point where you have so many chapters and you have so many things and it's like, okay, but like, where are we going? Right. So for myself, I have that, but yeah, Scrivener, a lot of writers really like, I think it's just finding the thing that works for you and um, not believing that there is one source that will be your end all be all because every, you know, app or whatever you do is going to have its advantages and disadvantages. And when they hop on the coaching call, do you have like a sharing screen situation going mm -hmm. on? Are you, how do you guys view the stuff together at the same time? I love these process questions. This is the stuff people don't talk about. Um, yeah, tell me the nitty gritty. I want, I want to feel like I'm in the room too, watching yeah, this call. Yeah, and, and tell me when I'm not giving you enough detail. <laughs> um, yeah, so when I get on a coaching call, uh, so I do audio only with my coaching clients. Okay. And that's really just so you're focused on the conversation. I feel like, um, you know, with especially with the pandemic, we have all just been seeing each other so much more. And I think that um, when we can, you know, just have our, our screens be blank. I'm just listening to you. You just tell me what you're thinking of. I normally start with what's on your mind. And normally it's after, you know, it's, it's been after a round of feedback. So I, the coaching calls are normally paired with, you know, the most recent deadline. And I really let my clients lead that because if I'm coaching them, I'm not supposed to tell them upfront what they're thinking, feeling, whatever. Um, I, that's my opportunity to hear them and listen. And so, um, like I was on a call yesterday with a client and, you know, I was like, so, you know, what's on your mind? Tell me what's happening. And that simple question just unlocks so many other things that, if I say like, okay, so tell me exactly how you feel about this feedback, this round of feedback. You know, they might have had thoughts in their heads for a while of something else that maybe I didn't address or, you know, that we haven't really had a chance to talk about. So that opens things up so much more. And then from there, I just really like, again, it's asking questions. I try not to assume. So like this, client in particular was just really kind of hung up on um, how she was supposed to approach a specific part of her story. And so it's not my job to tell her what to do. 
I'm just asking her like, so how do you feel about this thing? So why is it that we started with, you know, why, why is it that we're starting with this emotion? Why is this character saying this one thing? Why, you know, and just breaking those things down so that she can come to that realization herself. And it's more of really pointing out the, I tell my clients all the time, I'm just here to help you chip away at the story that you already know how to tell. I'm not here to, you know, send you off on a different path. We, we have like the mold a little bit and now we're just chipping away at it. And people seem to really um, appreciate that approach. And so I'm like, we're just chipping, we're just chipping. So, um, so yeah, so I normally just start with what's on your mind and then we just. And spirals well. from there. <laughs> and they're out an hour long, you said? Yeah. Typically. Okay. Okay. And how does someone know when they're ready for a book coach? How, and how would someone find your services? Yeah. Um, I would say that you know you're ready for a book coach first when you know you can dedicate the time. And that's probably uh, one of the hardest things for people to latch on to that it's going to take so much more time than you think. And I can only do so much, you know, you're the person who has to show up with the deadlines and, and all of that and really like carve out that time, even when life gets crazy. And so I like to tell people you need to have like two contingency plans because life is going to get nuts. And so definitely when you know that you have enough time, when you know that you're ready for help in the sense that you know that this thing can't happen without someone else and you're open to feedback, you're open to, you know, what the process might be. And you're also writing a book that people will want to read. And so that I say that because you have to not be precious about some of these things and know that it's, it's a messy process. It's not going to be perfect. You you might write, you know, 50 pages and realize that it's a totally different story, which is something that happened with a client recently. And so it's really when you have that time, you're ready for that feedback and you know that you know, this is this is going to be a whole entire process that you can't control every piece of. And um but yeah, people can um, you know, my website it's amandapollock.com. And I have a, you know, you can book a 30 minute coaching call and we can figure out if we like each other. And, um, but I also have some free resources over there and um, like how to write your first 25 pages of purpose, uh, which I feel like the first 25 pages are really the, the, the most important part that's you're setting the foundations. And that's honestly where I spend a lot of time with my clients in the beginning is just figuring that out because my thing too, is that you shouldn't have to write an entire book before you realize that's not the book you want to write. Right. So let's get there quicker. And let's just think about that, you know, reader on the other side, because if you're writing a book and you want people to read it, you need to think about them up front and not, you know, when you send a query letter or a book proposal and then be like, Oh, I forgot. People are right. supposed to want to buy this and read it. Right. Okay. And what are some tips you'd give a writer who's struggling with getting started on their book? Yeah. Um, 
first, I would say that you need to show up as much as possible. And there is this assumption that creativity only comes, you know, in certain waves and you have to be hit with inspiration. Jack London, um, who wrote Call of the Wild and a bunch of other books, uh, he has this quote, it, I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically like you can't wait for create inspiration to hit you. You have to go after it with a club. And, you know, having dedicated time every day, just even think about a book or think about your writing. Because sometimes you're not going to be writing every day, but just some space where you're like, even if it's 10 minutes, you're like, okay, I'm just going to spend this time focusing on this project, thinking about some things, maybe I'm brainstorming, whatever. But the more opportunities you give yourself to show up, it's going to be so much easier because it's easy to push things aside. You know, I tell people, if you make plans with a friend, I guess before all this, um, you know, but if, if you make an appointment or something, you most often keep that appointment. You most often keep those commitments. And not keeping a commitment to yourself is probably one of the worst things you can do because you can push that off so much. And if this is a book you really want to do, then you are going to have to give yourself every opportunity. Um, the second thing I would say is, you know, really just think about why this story is important. Like why this is the story you need to be writing now, because if you don't have a strong enough reason why you're doing it halfway through when things get hard, you're probably going to abandon it. Right. And the third thing I would say is be okay writing things that you have to throw away. And it's just part of that process. Mm -hmm. Also, it's going to take longer than you think. Yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> And be gentle, you know, it's, and just in keeping those things in mind, if it's just like, be gentle with yourself. Like, you know, if you're showing up and you're doing this stuff and, you know, it's taking longer than you think, you are totally not alone. It doesn't mean that you're not a good writer, that your book isn't good. It's just part of, you know, everyone's process is different. But I think if you um, give yourself that time, know it's going to take longer and, you know, and, and think about like why you're really doing it that's going to set you up for success like throughout the process. Right. Such great tips. Um, I want to jump back to the first one because I strongly agree with that one. That's real one. That one really stands out to me, what I'm trying to say through all yeah. my mumble jumble. Um, my boyfriend and my dad, I can't remember. They both told me similar stories, but um, because I make YouTube videos, I remember when I was going through a rut, my boyfriend's like, well, I heard of this one YouTuber, you know, he uploaded every single day for like a year or something like that. I can't remember the exact story, but he said that he'd write down all the ideas every single day and like, yeah, half of them, more than half of them could be trash, but you just need that one for like your video and then do it again the next day, write down a bunch of ideas, whatever comes to your head. Again, a lot of them are going to be trash, but again, you'll find something, you'll find something. So Mm -hmm. I think it was like that for songs too. My dad told me about a music artist that would do the same thing. Like he would make a song every day or maybe my boy, I'm getting all the stories confused. Um, <laughs> make a song every day and not all of them were good, but he was able to make an album out of all the ones that he pulled that were like his best ones. So I totally agree with that whole, you need to, you know, set aside that time every single day and do what's needed, whether it's to write down those ideas. And, you know, that makes me think of something that, um, 
when I was at Second City, um, how you graduate the program is you write a one act review with your group. Okay. And you know you're going to do this from the beginning. So the program's about a year and a half. And I remember one of my um, teachers had said, get a notebook now and start writing ideas because you'll need them for this show that happens in a year and a half that you're not even writing. And he's like, you're going to write a lot of shit. And there's going to be a lot of really bad things. And also you're going to forget stuff. Like, that's just a, a thing. You think you're going to remember this idea. He's like, but just write everything down and then figure it out later. And I still look at that book and I'm like, oh, that was actually a good idea. Or, you know, some of them, it's just like, what is that? <laughs> to give yourself the opportunity to, you know, write a lot of really bad stuff. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I love it because that's how you come to the best ideas, I find. And then the other way is... Um, this is a great example that my dad told me the uh, author for twilight, Stephanie Myers. Mm -hmm. um, she would have, before she wrote these books, these vivid dreams of these vampires and wolves while she was sleeping. So in the middle of the night, she would wake up and she would go jot down as much as she could remember because come morning, you're obviously going to forget. So mm -hmm. that's what stemmed her to write this whole series. And now look at her. She's like a freaking millionaire. So that's so fun. Yeah. I see. I love hearing stuff like that. And you know, I think not assuming there's going to be a specific outcome can also really help. So, you know, she's just waking up and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to write all of this stuff down. Sometimes you don't know where it's going to lead. Um, but just anything that comes up like that, definitely. Oh my gosh. Now I'm like, I need a journal right next to right next to your bed. I feel <laughs> like it's very helpful. <laughs> um, so what are some of the biggest mistakes writers make when they start writing a book? What are some commonalities you often come across? Yeah, the time thing, honestly, or, you know, thinking that they can um, just churn out pages because maybe they've written before and assuming that it's going to, you know, that um, just happen itself, you know, and it's like, oh yeah, cool. 25 pages. Totally. I got it. And then, you know, I'll get a frantic email a few days before of like, oh, I'm not even anywhere close or, you know, I'm having this block. But so I would definitely say the time thing and, you know, a little bit of not understanding that even, so I do a lot of memoir and not understanding that just because there, uh, something happened, it really happened to you, that that's not really enough for people to want to read your story. And that is a really hard thing for people to grasp. And it's a hard thing to tell people. Right. Like, this is a cool like story at a bar or a party, but you know, there's not this overall narrative. And for a lot of writers, it is hard to kind of wrap your mind around like a full length book. I get a lot of people who have written, you know, a lot of short stories or they read a lot of short stories or, you know, they, it's just, it's kind of hard to think about like 300 pages of a book. For sure. Um, but I, I try and tell people like, think of like a movie. In the very beginning, you know exactly what the stakes are. You know, like, why I think romantic comedies are a really great example of this because in the beginning, you know, like, okay, great. So, 
you know, she's losing her family farm and now she has to go and work in the city and, oh, wow, you know, like there's a love interest or, you know, whatever it is, but very early on, you know, exactly what they're doing, why, and why it's important. And, you know, you're in writing classes so often, you know, if, if you were in writing classes and thinking about my own college experience and no one really teaches you how to write a book or they, te they don't teach you that there have to be stakes. There has to be a reason why, you know, that the character is doing what they're doing. And so a lot of people will just write thinking that it'll come, you know, that over time that they'll figure that thing out. And it's like, you got to figure that out in the beginning, at least something, there's some kind of, you know, there has to be this, um, a hook. I tell people that, you know, think about if you would send a pitch to a magazine of like, I have this idea for a, an article. Cool. Give me the two lines of why I should, you know, you should write this story. And that's probably like the hardest thing for people to do because, and they, they'll push back some and, you know, give a, a vague answer. And then that's just when I have to like push my coaching stuff and be like, I know you got it. It's, it's in there. You just got to be more specific because that makes the writing process so much easier. Absolutely. I feel like, um, I didn't school, go to school for writing, but I went for a television and film production mm -hmm. and script writing came very similarly to what you're talking about. The stakes, mm -hmm. love interests, all the same types of things. Mm -hmm. And I remember writing my first couple scripts, uh, like screenplay scripts and, you know, I'd get them back and then I would have like red pen markings all over my thing. And I was like, I thought my story was so good. And they're like, but you're missing this. How does this connect to this? You need to mention this earlier on. Like this wasn't addressed. So I'm like, there's so much more. So having that like exterior person. So in this situation, you being the book coach kind of pull all that in, it makes a big difference. That's so, and like you talking about things have to connect to one another that's a huge part that people miss about stories. Like I think especially with books, I mean, even some movies, you know, nothing is happening for no reason at all. Right. Everything should cause the, like the next thing. And have you read Save the Cat? Talking no, about no, but I remember my prof told us in second year, uh, he just got hired, just jumping into interrupt your story real quick. No, and no. Um, he said, have you guys read Save the Cat? And then everyone's like, no, he's like, are you serious? We're all like, yeah, I like, this is something they should have assigned to you in first year. Okay. So when everyone goes home, they're going to go get this book. I don't care if you buy it on Amazon. I don't care if you go to the library. This is like essential for this program. And everyone's like, okay. So they all jotted it down. Continue your story. <laughs> it's such a great book. I had some friends who were writing screenplays um, when I was still living in LA and they had recommended it. And I think regardless, just as far as a storytelling book, like it, it really helped me too. And the, the, I won't ruin, like if people haven't read it, I won't ruin like what save the cat really means. But I feel like in that whole entire book, it's just really talking about, you know, what makes a story compelling that you um, can have a character who is terrible, but you know, beautiful moments. I'm still not ruining the save the cat moment, but you know, it's, um, but things need to connect to one another. And then also there is a formula to storytelling. And once you understand the formula for a lot of those things, and I'm thinking particularly there's, um, he breaks down this um, towards the end. He's like, 
and he, he breaks down the, the time increments for most like, I think, you know, for your standard 90 minute. And he said, there's always like a moment of death, you know, someone's lost a dream, someone's lost a person or what they were working for, you know, it's not going to happen. And then you have that moment that, you know, comes back around and, you know, they finally get what they want, maybe. And understanding though, that there is really a method to the madness was so helpful for me in the beginning of just even like, oh, okay. So we're kind of breaking some of this stuff down. And I had a, a director at Second City and we were sitting next to each other for um, a sketch show. And, you know, it was fully written and all of this stuff. And he was whispering specific moments in this, you know, like overall narrative. He's like, oh, it's the moment of death. Oh, this is the whatever. And like, you know, it even translates from film to stage, but it was just funny because it didn't ruin the experience, even though, you know, like, oh, okay, this is where we're going. It just makes you fall in love with it so much more. Because sure. you're like, oh, innately, this feels like what a story is supposed to be. Right, right. Um, what was it going to ask now? As I babbled on about, <laughs> I was like, did we answer the question? I think so. Um, okay. So <laughs> I, did. I'm like, I don't know. That's why I love podcasts though, because you can go on such a ramble to different topics and then you get brought back to the original one, but I love the conversations all in between. It's like I'm what the makes queen of side notes. I'm like, side <laughs> note, I can tell you these seven stories so you know that it matters. <laughs> Um, so you have a love for entertainment, video production, and food writing. Oh, do you have novel, novelist abilities as well? Or do you find you excel just in your fields? Well, I started, um, with writing, um, creative writing. And so I think that's kind of, you know, that was always in the back of my head, even as I was acting and I was, you know, going off with improv and stuff. So when I started college, I did have this idea of magazine writing, but I was like, oh, now I get to take writing workshop classes and I can work on my own stuff. And, you know, but I always saw that as, you know, and maybe I'm rethinking some of these things, but um, I always saw that as just my own passion projects. I never really thought of it like, being out in the world. And I, I did self-publish a memoir a couple of years ago. I just sold it directly on my site. Um, and since I started book coaching and also understanding some more of like story fundamentals or just different things, I was like, oh yeah, this book will come out again, but I need to rework it. So, but I did put it out there and like, that was, you know, that's also really helpful for me because it was a memoir. Um, so you wrote a memoir? I did. Wow. And I, I'm, I was better than I thought I would be, you know, and I, I wrote it actually pretty quickly, um, which as I said, like book writing takes so long that I'm like, I wrote it really quickly. Uh, but it and um, the, the title was Reincarnated, How Lost Dreams, Jobs, and Love Set Me Free. And, you know, a lot of what I've talked about today, but just this idea of you latch on to this one thing that you're supposed to do and what happens when you realize it's no longer your one thing. Okay. And so 
Um, so that's helpful for me, even just when I'm talking with clients of like, I totally get it, you know, but of not under, you know, being frustrated or not understanding, you know, how this story is really supposed to be compelling because if it's, you know, if it's a memoir, it's your, it's your life. So you feel like, oh, you have to know everything. And so, so that's helped me, but, um, I will revisit that at some point. So is it still up? Is the memoir still up? It's not because as soon as I started um, coaching and I saw it through new eyes and I was like, okay, I need to, I need to rework this. This is, I can, I can see so many opportunities for it to, um, for me to rework it and then maybe even, you know, send a book proposal, do, you know, an actual. Okay. Well, I'll wait till it's re-released and then I'll pick it up because I'd definitely be interested. I know. I hope I didn't give away like even too much in this thing where if you want to pick it up, you're like, you already told me all of this. I feel like people will still read it though. Like there's a reason why, you know, if somebody enjoys you on one platform, they're going to go follow you and see what else you've done, you know? Yeah. So how can someone gain experience as a writer when people want someone with maybe more experience? Yeah. Um, the first thing I would say, it's kind of even like the, um, what I did with my first internship that was totally virtual, but you know, you, you really just start with like the stuff that you already have access to. So if you have a website, you should start writing blog posts, figuring out, you know, what kind of, uh, things you want to talk about. I would, you know, have maybe two to three topics, you know, that you're really kind of niching down on and start posting regularly. So, because when you start sending um, either, you know, if you're sending magazine pitches or something, they normally want clips of that. So, and they'll take stuff from your own blog at first. So I would say that getting into, you know, a writing class or even just learning from other people uh, is a really good way because sometimes you might have a clip or, you know, you can produce some kind of a short story or, you know, the first 10 pages of a book or, you know, whatever it is, it just gives you some more material to work with. For sure. And even, you know, literary journals, and um, there's some lit journals that, you know, take short stories or, you know, there's a lot of contests also. A lot of, I'm thinking specifically of the Writer Magazine, and they have a lot of writing contests that you can enter they do flash fiction and all, you know, kinds of different fun things. But I think even just getting that um, kind of, you know, wheel of inspiration moving and you're just throwing stuff out there, might be good, might be bad. And you're just seeing what works and then building relationships that way, because you know, a lot of like, if you're submitting stuff to a lit journal or a contest or, you know, whatever it is, you're, editors are seeing that, you know, there's people who might be able to work with you and and craft your stuff um, beyond that, you know, but my first stuff was, you know, writing for my college paper and, you know, people need content. That's something I would really encourage people. If you want to write, I think that sometimes the mediums, they matter, but not as much and just try. Like I've gotten so many things just by like emailing. Someone, I didn't even know, I didn't even have a connection and just saying, I have an idea for, you know, a story, 
or a couple stories. We just love to know what you think. Uh, people always want stories. There's never going to be a be shortage. A <laughs> yeah. Wild. Okay. Well, you've had quite a bit of success in food magazines. I've seen on your blog all the ones you're kind of featured in, some big names, Southern Living, Time, Cooking Light. So how does one start a career in magazines? Um, and especially with, you know, people say nowadays, like radio is dying, television is dying, like magazines are dying, newspapers are dying. What, what would you just say to that? People have just been saying that for so long. I know. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, Jane, uh, Jane Friedman is a really good resource. Um, she has this book. It's called The Business of Being a Writer. I had to look at my, my bookshelf and remember what it was called. The, the Business of Being a Writer. And she talks a lot about how she came from the world of book publishing, but she covers magazines and stuff in this book. And I echo what she says that writing has always been a career that you've had to kind of cobble, you know, so authors used to have, I, I want, I, I think the, I'm spacing on like the exact word, but they basically had like donors who were support. They had sponsors. They had, you know, some kind of wealthy aristocrat who was funding them able, you know, being able to write. And so especially now when you're in like the gig economy, I think people are a little bit um, more flexible with, you know, the things that they're willing to take on. Mm -hmm. You can cobble a career together. Jane Friedman says cobble. So, but um, you can really create something that works specifically for you. So, you know, even with magazines, yeah, you start with, you know, pitching a couple of outlets, you know, with some pitches, if you don't have any connections in the magazine world. A lot of people need content. I'm going to just keep repeating that, that, and a lot of these editors know each other. So that's another thing where you should be involved in some kind of uh, writing network or specifically like with food writing. Um, I'm thinking of the Southern Foodways Alliance, which has a lot of chefs and editors and people who are all a part of that. And um, they focus specifically on Southern food stories and they have a very particular brand, but you can find a lot of like, you know, if you look at organizations, you can find, you know, what editors of what magazines are where, that's how you meet people. Um, but a lot of companies are still hiring. Like if you look at LinkedIn for even jobs with like the New York Times or, you know, um, any number of like big media companies like Meredith who ended up buying Time Inc, my former um, employer, they have, you know, editor jobs that range from 34,000 to 65,000, you know, like you could actually have a full-time job working someplace. And, you know, a lot of places are switching more to digital. So I would say that, you know, just understanding that even if you are, you know, you love print or, you know, you love like hard copy stuff, a lot of things happen on the web. You know, there's opportunities for advancement if you're just able to pivot quickly. You know, I started at Cooking Line as an editorial fellow, started filming videos just with people from the video studio. And I ended up being the company's first Facebook Live producer when that whole platform took off because wow. 
I was spearheading my own stuff. I had experience in live performance. Who knew that my improv stuff would come back? And I understood the food stories that they were already telling. Um, but also, you know, don't let specific outlets um, box you in. Like if you're already writing stuff on your own website, a lot of companies are hiring people who have followings. So if you have a lot of, you know, if you're building up your Instagram or if you're, you know, building up your email subscribers on your website, that stuff that companies are looking at that they had not previously. So there's so many ways that you can, you know, pop in to an industry that used to be really closed off. You don't need an internship anymore. Awesome answer. Um, I guess, so being in um, like food magazines, is that what stemmed you wanting to be a coach for food writing? So yes, but also the food stuff was just like, I didn't go to culinary school. I'm not a food blogger. I was just going to ask. Yeah. Like this is another thing that I just want everyone to know. You don't actually have to know something to be good at it. I just kind of landed into that. I um, I worked on and off for like seven years at Whole Foods and fell in, I mean, I love food anyway, but um, you know, it was kind of there where I got more experimental with stuff and you know, the people who work there are just super interesting and um, customers love to talk to you about recipes and different things. And, you know, so I got very comfortable having those conversations with people. And so then when I was um, trying to you know, just start writing stories for my college paper, the first thing I thought, I was like, oh, there's this farmer's market in Oakland that I love. Let me just write about that. And all of the stories I was drawn to were about food. And if you would have told me five years before that I would be trying to write about food, I'd be like, who am I to write about food? I don't know. I have no idea. Right. But I saw that it wasn't just about food. It's, you know, it's always about something deeper. It's about what a specific topic means to someone, how it transforms them. And so, I, you know, I fell into that and then I just loved it so much. I really was able to like connect with, you know, any chef who I interviewed or even hosted stuff with, I felt this kinship with them. And I can't, I can't describe what that is because again, I didn't have a culinary background. There's a lot of people who I worked with at the mag at Cooking Light mm -hmm. who are food bloggers, who do have big Instagram followings, who are in the kitchen all the time. And yet I was able to connect with these people who were, you know, had won James Beard Awards, which is the creme de la creme of, you know, food um, awards. And they wanted to talk to me and they wanted to connect. And so I leaned into that. And then as I'm crafting my business, just as far as who I want to serve, like, I feel like I would be able to serve those people the best because I speak their language enough, but I'm also not there to tell them what to be doing. And I feel like that was just an important distinction for me that you know, maybe if I had my, you know, if I was this big, huge Instagram, you know, person or whatever it was that I would maybe try to steer that a little bit more or bring in, you know, this different kind of authority. But I think me not having that background has really, you know, having enough knowledge 
but just still, you know, okay, so tell me more about this. Oh, this is really interesting. You know enough, but you don't have to know everything. Right, right. Okay. So what are some mistakes you made on early in your career that you learned from and would go about differently in the future or have gone about differently? Well, I think saying no to an interview. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I would say, you know, for, and this really, like, I just wish somebody would have told me, you know, and I think I said a little bit of this before, but, you know, networking is, it has this kind of uh, dirty connotation, I think sometimes, you know, like going to networking events or meeting people or whatever. When I was living in LA, people were like, oh, you know, it's all about who you know. And I thought it was this person in a corner office who was a big wig. Um, and they were going to be the person who decides your fate. And if you don't have that, you know, person who is a millionaire or whatever it is, like, you know, who you know, who you personally know, you're never going to make it. I just wish sooner I would have realized that it's the people around you at your level who are the ones who are going to take you with them. So, you know, like when I started um, taking improv classes, you know, everyone's like, oh, we just need to get booked on this show. Oh, we just need to, oh, I, I want, I need to know this big casting director. I need to know this big actor, whatever it was. And now 10 years later, those very people who I started with who were, you know, working their barista job and, you know, like all kinds of other things, pet walking, whatever, they're producers on, you know, national shows. They have their own shows. They, you know, they're, they're, doing the thing and no one of us approached those relationships thinking like, what can I get? We were just all there championing, championing each other. And from that, those people want to take you with them. Yeah. Like people want to work with their friends. Right. And that's something that, you know, if you look at like Adam Sandler movies or whatever, it's his same friends, you know, like there's some those things where it's like, oh my gosh, it's all of these same people again. But people want to work with people who they know and who they like. Right. And um, so I would say like focus less on random people who you don't know, who you think are going to be, you know, the gatekeepers, whatever, and really focus on like the people who are at your level right now. And because when they start building their stuff and growing, they're going to take you with them, especially if you were just like there from the beginning. Right, right. For the right reasons, not the wrong ones. Yes, just because you're like, I just, you know, I'm so excited. Like I went to, um, I showed up for people, especially like, you know, just uh, improv shows and stuff. There's, you know, especially in L.A., there were a lot. I remember I would meet someone they're like, Oh, I have a show. And I started just going to every person's show I could. And sometimes I was the only person in the audience for someone. And those people are ones who have then gone on to, you know, got like have full-time writing jobs for television shows and whatever. And I'm just genuinely excited for them and for their success. And it's not that I'm like, Oh, because I, Oh, I went to their show because I knew that they were going to, you know, fame was going to find them or success was going to find them and they're going to want to take me with them. I just went because 
I knew that there might be a time where I only had, you know, one person in the audience and I would be so lucky. And it's just that genuine sense of, I want to support you and I see what you're doing and I just like you as a person. And I hope that, you know, good things happen to you, that those are the things that people remember. Those are the, the reasons why people are going to want to work with you and keep you around or refer you for something like, but I just think it really has to come from, I want to show up for other people because I want people to show up for me and, you know, and just focusing on who's around you instead of who's 72 steps ahead of you. Right. Right. Well, that's awesome advice. I feel like people could learn a lot from that. And yeah, you didn't even know from the beginning where they were going to go down the road, but that's crazy. Like, look at where they are now. Look at where you are now. And like, you'll never know when you cross paths again. You, and that's a, that's a good point too. And like, you don't know, I was told, you know, when I was younger, like never burn a bridge. And I was like, yeah, whatever. But like, if I quit this job, I'm never going to see these people again. That is so not true. You know, like I have come across so many people and like people who I actually worked with at second city who then became editorial directors when I worked at Time and they were working in New York. Like we had an office in New York and in Birmingham. And someone was like, hey, do you know so-and-so? Because they said that they used to live in LA and work for Second City. And I was like, what? This is crazy. <laughs> but you know, the world is so small. So you definitely like, don't, <laughs> you, you never know who you're going to meet. Like I get connections sometimes on LinkedIn. I'm like, this is so random. You know, these people, because people remember stuff. Yeah. So yeah, more than you'll, you'll think. So, <laughs> um, well, on some lighthearted stuff, let's just dive into some of your hobbies and interests. What do you do when you're not doing book related things? Yeah. Oh man. Exercise is like, that is probably, um, I don't know if that's considered a hobby, but I need it to de-stress. So a lot of times, um, if I'm not doing yoga or something at home, we actually have some botanical gardens here in Nashville. I'm a member there. Yes. And so I go and walk around, get some nature in. Uh, I think it's also, so going back to when I was talking about just being from California and like not realizing how some stuff affects you. Yeah the ocean was my place. I didn't realize how much until I was landlocked. Um, but I used to drive out to the, I used to drive out to the beach and just sit and think. And, you know, you don't, you, I mean, I guess you can, you know, do stuff at the beach, but I just found it was such a grounding place because I was so present. And so the botanical garden has, has been that for me. Um, just getting out in nature, not having to, you know, I don't worry about taking pictures or anything. Like I just am able to really be present. Right. So I love that. Um, I mean, before the pandemic, uh, I actually had a, a dinner club with friends and we would go to one restaurant that most of us had not been to, um, which I feel like is, is really fun, especially because, you know, you kind of go to a lot of the same places. Yeah. Um, but I also do a lot of volunteer work um, nice. with St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. So I've been on their committee for four years now. And so that takes up a lot of my time. But I totally believe in that. We do an event here in Nashville. Um, it's 
a five course meal. We have um, chefs from around town who each take a course and it's a wine dinner and stuff and we do a silent auction. And, and so we've been starting that back up because we had a can't get a postponer event this year. Right. And um, so, yeah, so I get to spend time with like a lot of just really generous people um, who are a lot of fun. And I think that that's been really nice, especially lately when, you know, quarantine, I think some of, even if you're getting outside and doing some stuff, um, you know, you're, you're fatigued, you're a little bit tired of all of this stuff. So I think me focusing on other people and how I can help someone else has really kind of just helped my mental state. So so, I'm always like, am I interesting enough? Oh you know, my gosh, yes. I've been talking about these like, you're like, I don't know, what do I do for fun? So what's next for you? Are you just going to continue being a book coach? Do you see any other opportunities on the side happening? Or with the pandemic, it's kind of like put everything to a halt that you're like, I'm just going to focus in on this one thing for now. Yeah, no, that's such a good question. I'm also like, I don't know, Clarissa. <laughs> you're like, I'm, so soon. like, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the thing I'm trying to do also just is to remind myself that, you know, I'm, I'm doing this thing that I actually really love. You know, I love working with my clients. I love the feedback that they give of, you know, not that I have to only have good feedback, but, you know, I, I feel like I'm really kind of in my zone right now, but I do see potential for other stuff, you know, um, because at the crux of everything I'm doing, I just really believe in people telling, like connecting people to their best stories. That's, you know, the title I have on my website, but I could see film, video, screenplay, writing, something like that coming back. I can definitely see those dreams I had so many years ago, kind of, you know, even coming full circle. Full circle. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to stay open to that. And then I'm also trying to um, listen to what people are saying I'm good at. And, you know, even just thinking about other ways to serve. Um, I, someone said to me the other day, they were like, I really like your, like getting your email newsletter. And they're like, I know I would, I'm not your ideal client. I never want to write a book, but I just like opening your emails. You know, maybe you should teach me some tips or something, you know, and I wouldn't have thought of like doing anything like that. But now I'm like, I don't know, maybe I should, who knows? Yeah. Like, just, yeah. you know, just a little seed of something. It's one of those files you put in your head for later. It's a file you put in your head. And it's like, I don't know that, you know, not say I'm launching like a thousand dollar email writing course, but you know, taking note more of where people are complimenting you of, you know, your strengths that you might not really see. And then, you know, seeing an opportunity for something more. I think in the past um, years ago, I was, just probably so focused in on like, no, I'm only doing this one thing and I'm not trying to go a million different directions, but leaning in more to the opportunities and being flexible with especially everything that's happening now. But yeah, I kind of see all of my dreams coming back around somehow. I don't know how that works, but yeah, for now it's um, just noticing, filing stuff away, but I do really love the stuff I'm doing now. 
Amazing. Well, the last question I usually end the podcast off with is if you're happy with the direction of life that you're currently on, the path you're taking. That's such a good question. <laughs> I feel like it's a hard question. A lot of people are like, ah, oh, like, yeah, but, and then they like say this whole long list. <laughs> so I'm so glad that we're talking at this moment because I am actually so happy with how things are going. And I think that some of it is too, is just being content with everything that's happening right now and not trying to jump too far ahead. Um, there's this, it was this old Hulu um, show. It was like a mini, a very, very, when I say like mini series, I think the episodes were like eight minutes long, but it was with Sherry Appleby. Okay. And it was called um, Advice from My Future Self. I think okay. I got the title right. And, you know, her future self is giving her all of this advice for these things that are happening now. And it's a really fun series, but there was, there's one line in particular where um, she has a realization. She was like, now is the best time of my life. Wow. And so just holding on to that thing that we always think, oh, my best, the best time of my life is going to be in five years, or it was seven years ago or whatever it is. But just having that in my head constantly that right now is the best time of my life. And I think that that shifted a lot of stuff for me, especially like once all of this stuff started happening, you know, and I started my, you know, started my business and just kind of taking my career in a different way. Um, I just want to be really present with what I have now and be grateful for that. Because if you're not grateful for the small things you have, you're not going to be able to appreciate things when, you know, it really takes off or. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Well, yeah, of course it was a very good answer. Um, I feel like you have a lot of really good like analogies and references that you pull from that like always tie the story in. That's like the storyteller in you like together. So it just meshes so well as an answer. Thank you. Cause sometimes I'm like, I don't know am I saying too many like, <laughs> no, no, the podcast is the platform for it. Trust me. Um, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add before we end the show? I mean, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. Like, this has been so much fun. And when, you know, I listened to some of your episodes, I was like, this is such, I, I just, I enjoy your, um, your energy thank and you. also how prepared you are with stuff. Like, it's just been such a fun conversation. And I feel like, you know, um, there are so few opportunities to have just like really good, deep conversations. Like intentional. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so any, so that's really all I have to say. I well, just thank you so it. much. I really appreciate you coming on, taking the time out of your busy, busy life to, um, you know, share your story and, and let everyone know, you know, the obstacles you faced and um, how you went about them, how you went about, you know, cold calling people, uh, connections, networking. I feel like you covered so, so much in this episode and I feel like it's a lot of valuable um, information. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you were all able to take something away from Amanda's journey. Don't forget to check her out on all social media platforms, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.